1: Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It's Wednesday, February 10th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. On this episode, it is Starting Pitcher Rankings Part 1. We're expecting a two-episode series focusing on starting pitching. We talk about starting pitching all the time, but we figured... Pitchers, baby! Let's dig into those rankings. Eno had a set of rankings go up at the end of the week last week. I had some rankings go up about a week before that. Things are always moving, of course. We'll talk about some players we differ on, some players we agree on, some players we think the market is just flat-out wrong about. So we're going to cover a ton of ground on this episode. We're going to get to a few mailbag questions as well. In-game video is back for 2021. Woohoo! Good news for some hitters, maybe some bad news for pitchers kind of wrapped <laughs> up in there as well. And we had one question come in coming out of our outfield preview that we're going to follow up on as well. So... You know, I'm excited to talk about pitching. I think it's uh, our favorite thing to discuss on this show. And I was digging into the ranks again before we started recording. And one thing that I thought was worth talking about right off the top is, you know, we have this news that, at least for now, Universal DH is not coming back based on the latest round of, of adjustments for the 2021 season. I don't think it's totally dead, but it's definitely looking more and more like we won't have it in the National League, which is a pretty big turn from where we were just a few days ago. Applying that to pitchers, that would give an advantage back to NL pitchers. right? If they go back to facing the pitcher spot instead of a DH, any place where you had at least a toss up based on skills and opportunities now favors NL pitchers. Maybe even at the top for some people. DeGrom versus Cole was one where if you liked Cole a little more than DeGrom assuming universal DH this might be enough to flip DeGrom back in front. You and I I think both have DeGrom atop our boards but uh, that has a pretty big impact on the pitching pool as a whole if we end up getting to opening day without the universal DH coming back for this 2021 season.
2: Yeah, and I think that it's important to to note to know that like, you know, our rankings will change a little bit. I know that I've had, you know, some pushbacks at times of people being like, you know, why would it change? You know, like, you know, that means it's, it's not real or whatever, but information changes. Uh, people get hurt. Uh, we can learn about the DH and in the making of this, um, I personally thought there would be no DH. So my rankings in an intuitive sense did not really, um, consider there being an NLDH. However, I did use the bat projections as uh, my original sorting. So there's a bias there. Like I definitely hue towards projections on some level. Um, And the bat assumed that there would be an NLDH. So, you know, when I update these again, and it'll be within a week or something, um, I'll have new the bat numbers in there. I have new ADPs in there. um, And I will try to sort and resort the list and kind of adjust uh, to that information and see if I had some uh, some internal biases towards the bats projections that I didn't even realize. But I I think I I have a internal bias long-standing bias towards National League pitchers that uh, probably showed up right now. Jack Flaherty is 11th in my rankings uh, after you argued him up a little bit um, and ahead of somebody like Kenta Maeda. Um, You know, the projections on Flaherty are better. Uh, The the stuff and command combo is similar. uh, And the DL uh, chances, the IL chances on Flaherty are better. Um, and now there's this information about the DH. So um, that's a that's something that um, may show a little bit of its head when I redo these rankings.
1: Yeah, it's a really good point about the projections. And coincidentally, Derek Cardi will be on the Athletic Fantasy Baseball podcast with Michael Beller and I on Thursday. So we'll have a whole bunch of questions about how those projections are made, what they do and don't account for. I think that's going to be really interesting because Derek is very bright. He'll shed a lot of light on some things that people don't necessarily understand about projections and the limitations of those numbers.
2: And try to get him to talk about what he's doing on the pitching side. <laughs> we, I'm very excited this. We will, try.
1: This. We will definitely try. See if we will give us a, a sneak preview. Uh, but looking at the very top of the pitching board, DeGrom versus Bieber versus Cole – is the debate at the top of your board. It's DeGrom versus Cole versus Bieber, I think, in terms of market, in terms of a lot of other rankings lists. I think rather than diving into DeGrom and Cole, I just want to ask you a simple question. Why do you believe that Shane Bieber remains an elite option in 2021? Because while I have him in my top three, I am less confident in usual, given that we've really seen it for a shortened season and nice stretches in 2019, of course, too. But what gives you confidence that Bieber truly belongs in the elite of the elite tier?
2: I mean, it's that combo of uh, of stuff and command. Um, you know, it's uh, when you start getting to that sort of 110 level of stuff, there aren't a lot of guys that, that have the same uh, that, even above average command. You can see it. Uh, all the guys that are green in both are near the top of my rankings in terms of Aaron Nola, Brandon Woodruff, uh, Luis Castillo, uh Kenta Maeda, Zach Gallen, Kyle Hendricks. If you have uh if you're green in both, uh you're gonna be higher than probably consensus or projections or anything. So that's that's part one. Uh part two is that, you know, compared to Cole, I like his um I like his stadium situation better. I like his park effects better. Um, and uh, I was a little surprised to see this, but uh, the the injury stuff on Cole, I know he's never had surgery, uh, but if you think back to his Pittsburgh days, he did actually lose time uh, to to arm injuries. It was you know temporary time. It wasn't like a whole season or anything. Uh, but that's the that's funneling that seventy eight per- percentile injury risk for Cole. So um, you know, to me, Degrom is the goat, and the question was Bieber or Cole second. Uh, and there's a bit of a shaving garlic situation going on there. So I'm not sure, uh, you could argue, you could argue Cole up, but, um, I'll take, uh, I'll take Bieber second.
1: For our listeners who may not know, what is it like to shave garlic?
2: <laughs> it's, isn't that like a Goodfellas thing where he's, like, he's got the little, sh- he's got a little razor and, he's, <laughs> and they're making the, uh, they're making the pasta in, in jail. Are you just trying to get that, you know, there's a very slight sliver of a difference between Bieber and Cole. The argument for Cole is just that he doesn't have, he's not in the center of the zone as much as Bieber. And so he doesn't have, there's some quality of contact issues with Bieber where like he does have this slight Homer risk because he lives closer to the the center of the zone. But I've seen enough in the heat maps and what he's talked about and, you know, in the last season and a half uh, or whatever you want to call last year, um, that uh, that I've seen enough where he's starting to live further from the center of the zone. And uh, I think that'll lead to better outcomes for his homers because he's, you know, in terms of, like, stuff, it's great. You know, he's got a, a really good fastball with and he's got two breaking balls, uh, and he even has a changeup he can throw in there sometimes.
1: Yeah, and if you were a pure stuffist, I think you Darvish and Kenta Maeda would actually be even higher on this list than they are. If you look at the rankings that Eno has on the site, there's the quality of the stuff, there's command, and then there's that injury risk uh, in there as well. I'm surprised to see that Cole is in the same level as DeGrom with injury risk since DeGrom previously had Tommy John surgery surgery, and Cole didn't. Like That, to me, would create a little more separation. So, yeah, I think it is... It's right to flag Cole because it was a forearm strength that cost him that time in Pittsburgh a few years ago. But I'm also surprised that Walker Buehler doesn't have a little more injury risk as well as someone that had Tommy John uh, coming out of college, right? I think that was part of of what enabled the Dodgers to get him.
2: I say the weakness in that injury list thing, you know, it's actually kind of funny because the weakness of that injury percentile is the strength of qualities of stuff and command quality and stuff in command uh, stabilize very quickly because they they're based on process things uh, you know the injury percentiles do not include minor league data just because there is no reliable minor league injury database there is they don't even report it you know like like how often do you know I, I was talking to Jeff Zimmerman about perhaps including um, minor league innings pitched per season as a proxy for like getting minor league injury risk in there. Cause then you, you might capture like a guy like Tristan McKenzie. The one problem with that also is, 2020 just happened and there was mm-hmm. no minor leagues so like does everybody just have a higher injury risk maybe maybe but like how do you you have to find a way to sort of mathematically deal with that that might be something that comes out in third fourth iterations of this when we have we can we can go back further we have minor leagues again and then we can have a proxy because if you look at uh Julio Urias um his injury list his injury list percentile is 13th percentile but he's had shoulder surgery Uh, you know, it just not necessarily showing up in this. Uh, maybe there's ways to just input it by hand, but then you're, you're, you'd rather automate the process. (laughs) So there's ways that the injury listing can be, uh, improved. Um, and I think that you can sort of mentally tick Mueller's numbers up a little bit, um, and Urias's, um, So that, 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 I, you know, I I get people arguing Bueller off. Um, but to me, you know, he belongs in that Bueller, Darvish, Bauer, G. Leto group. That group has excellent stuff and slight command issues, but not like, oh, they're going to be a reliever soon, you know. Um, just sometimes they're, Outcomes won't look as good as you expect, given their stuff.
1: I want to talk about Luis Castillo for just a moment. You've got him fifth. On your list a little higher than most people have them. It's not so much higher that it screams like outlier or anything like that, but I think it goes back to this problem we have oftentimes when you're positioned late in round one, early in round two, and you have this cluster of players that you're trying to decide between. You want to make that decision in advance, and you want to make that decision with some conviction. So uh, what bumps Castillo up ahead of guys like Darvish and Bauer and Giolito, who generally go before him in most drafts that we see?
2: it is that command i mean i just think that the, if you think about uh, pitching simplistically the the heart of pitching is strikeouts and walks and we i think we can cons- we we spend a considerable amount of time thinking about strikeouts and that's 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 important because it's probably the you know other than velocity, maybe the second most single statistic that's related to future outcomes. Plus, strikeouts are an actual category, <laughs> so you know it's a uh, it speaks directly to their fantasy quality. Uh, but the walk side, um, you know, people I, I think that we think of it as like pretty static year to year, um, but command fuels walks and homers allowed, you know, and. Um, speaks to like the ability to kind of put it all together. Um, I've talked about how Yu Darvish has had some up and down seasons. I've talked about Bauer. I've talked about how I think Gilito's walk rate is more likely to go up than down. Um, I don't think Castillo has that risk. If if there's any risk for me in Castillo, it's that the slider goes in and out. It's you know his two best pitches are the fastball and the changeup very clearly um but i think there's also some uh, potential for improvement on the slider as he uh, you know better commands it as he better uh gets a hold of it because that's been that thing that he's trying to co- turn into trying to improve but um give me a guy with that good command plus and i think he'll end up on the better ranges of what his stuff would predict i mean just look at guys who have uh good command plus at the top of this brandon woodruff aaron nola uh, Kenta maeda kershaw flaherty Scherzer, like gallon Hendricks, you know that that group um a lot of them have outperformed what people expected of them you know and i think that command is a part of that
1: yeah it almost seems like with command it it does make sense you'd have more variants for guys that have less command right so if you have uh a better command plus score like Castillo, like DeGrom, like Woodruff, like Scherzer, like Kershaw, you're much more likely to hit your projection, you know, in and, and the, the upside for the, the low command guys might be greater if the stuff is just as good. But the downside, the meltdown potential, right, the home run rate goes there, to the roof and the walk rate yeah. goes to the roof it's kind of quantifying risk in a different sort of way.
2: It's a floor and ceiling thing. And like, you know, I think that the, the good command plus gives you a high floor. Uh, good stuff gives you the high ceiling. And of, obviously at the top of my list, I want it to be green in both categories. But sometimes you have to make some cho- choices. I lean a little bit stuff. But at the bottom of my list, you'll see me take some chances on on guys uh, based on just having good stuff and not having good command. I mean, Mitch Keller is in my top ninety um uh, despite having reliever level command he's in the group with Dane Dunning and Nate Pearson where all those guys could end up as relievers and that's a real risk but at 90 you're buying the you're uh, around the 90th pitcher you're buying upside you're buying a guy who you're willing to drop later because you know you just want him to end up in the 75th percentile of his outcomes you don't really care about the 25th percentile he just won't be on your team um Adbert Alzolay counts as a guy like that like I find him very exciting because his stuff is great, you know. Um, but if you want to look at like the ups and downs of, of of a career, you don't have to look any further. Of a bad command career, you don't have to look any further than Chris Archer. Mm-hmm. Great stuff, bad command, two pitches. You know, when he was great, uh, he looked like Denilson Lamette and Tyler Glassnow, where he had these great strikeout rates and he had these two or three year stretch of, you know, like a three three ERA and and eleven strikeouts per nine. Uh, But then you you start to see, uh, you know, the fastball giving up homers and he doesn't really have command of those other pitches and the Pirates tried to get him to throw these other pitches but he didn't command them and it didn't go well. And so now you have him saying, I'm not going to throw two-seamers anymore. I'm going to focus on the pitches I can command a little bit. Uh, (laughs) And uh, and so that's why he's back in my top 100 uh, just barely. Uh, But also he's more of an upside play at this point.
1: Yeah, and I think the... Limited command and the two-pitch approach for Lamette has sunk his value, relatively speaking, in recent weeks. He's a legitimate early faller. His ADP since the start of February now in NFBC leagues is right around 96. The range is an early pick of 61 and a late pick of 139. I've seen some of our friends on Twitter saying it really doesn't matter how far he falls. I'm just not interested in Nelson Lamette.
2: That's, that's what happened in the drafts I've been in. That's, that informed my, also the high injury risk, which is the high injury risk there, Eighty six percentile injury risk, that's informed by things that have actually happened. Then we have information beyond that, which is, I mean, the team is saying, oh, he's good. He's good. Like he's doing all the, you know, everything's fine. Everything's fine. But we all saw how the season ended and, and like I was on the radio in San Diego and they didn't even really trust it. You know, they were like, every time we ask, (laughs) they say he's doing good. But, you know, oh, you're saying but, okay. Um, So, you know, and then being in drafts, I saw that. But where does that that new ADP put him among pitchers? Is that something you can do quickly? Because, um, you know, when I was doing these ranks, he showed up as one of the largest outliers in terms of the ADP had him 26th among pitchers. I had him 42nd, which was partially because of – what had been happening in drafts I'd been in, the injury risk, the two-pitch, the bad command, put that all together, and I'd rather have him in a group of guys that I find interesting but that I don't trust. You know, the group of pitchers that I trust ends around 35-40 um, and may end earlier than that. I mean, I, I said uh, to, to a group of friends that um, I said, for the first time when I was trying to rank the fourth pitcher which is a new world record. Usually that waits until <laughs> I get to like 15 or 16. So mm-hmm. uh, it, it got tough this year. But where does Lamet, um, where does that new ADP put him among pitchers?
1: 28th among starters. I think once you mm-hmm. throw out, there's a handful of closers that go before him. Both Hader and Hendricks go around pick 60. Uh, you add in Chapman and Diaz around pick 80. Rysel Iglesias right around pick 90. And then Lamet. Thirty third among pitchers, throw out those five closers. Twenty eighth among starters. That puts him just behind Barrios and Hendricks, just ahead of Zach Wheeler and Ian Anderson.
2: I mean, I'll take all those pitchers over him. And
1: you know, twenty six.
2: You know, when I had him in twenty six, there is some falling to twenty eight. I, I I expect that to fall even more. I think that'll yeah. fall even more. The only thing that that'll change it is uh, he pitches three innings in a spring training game and uh, has no complaints and maybe even has to do that twice before we all sort of believe it
1: has velo strikes out six guys in three innings gets everybody a little bit excited again but yeah i do see a lot of risk with lamette even beyond the injury risk which is already elevated so i don't know i i don't want to take the undraftable position on anybody i think there is a point at which i would draft him comparing that to what some other people on twitter have been saying like if you get him at like pick 150 okay like i can i can justify that that's my third or fourth starting pitcher at that point uh, but i don't want to take him any earlier than that so most likely i'm not going to have danelson Lamette anywhere unless i'm in a room full of people who are all skeptics and honestly even with better information about his health like even if i got like if we were
2: starting to get better like better feeling about it i don't know how far i'd push him past lance McCullough's. Um, who I think two pitch pitcher, same command issues, but not as bad. Um, you know maybe closer to three pitch pitcher, but uh also same very heightened injury risk. Um, and I have uh, Lance McCullers uh thirty second, so you know that's not a huge jump. I think you know yes ten, and it'd be a little bit closer to where his ADP is. But I'm not someone who would uh, put him in my top twenty five, even if. Um, even if I was more sure about him being healthy.
1: Here's a question that I'm much more comfortable asking you without the player being <laughs> within earshot. Are you expecting one more great year from Max Scherzer? I mean, based on where you have him ranked, where I have him ranked, I think we're on board. Are you actually taking him at the two-three turn if you don't have a pitcher yet, and you know the guys you have ranked ahead of him have all run off the board, and you have that that lingering doubt, like, oh, if I don't get a pitcher here. I'm going to be screwed if I wait to that 4-5 or five turn. Do you, do you still feel good about Scherzer as your SP1 inside the top 30-35 overall?
2: So guess what happened when you uh, you ar- argued me north on Jack Flaherty?
1: Oh no, he bumped Scherzer down? Yeah,
2: I moved... Don't tell him that. <laughs> I moved Jack Flaherty and Aaron Nola to 10-11. and 11, um, And Scherzer and Kershaw are now uh, 12th and 13th. So, um, yes... I I I'd feel better about Scherzer if I had two bats. I I would do uh, I would try to do something where I had two bats. If like we're talking snake draft strategy, I would have two bats. I would then get Scherzer, and then I'd probably in round four uh, try to get someone that I'm really high on. Um, you know, I don't know if Galland would fall. But, you know, the industry seems to be as in love with him as I am, but. Um, Maybe uh, Hendricks, you know, just a just a solid guy to put it, to put with them. Uh, maybe Barrios, um, who I'm big, I'm big on. Uh, worst case scenario, like uh, Valdez, Framber Valdez, or Julio Urias, who I know I'm way higher on. But you know, everything's being pushed up. You know, mm-hmm. so as I want to say, oh, I'll take Scherzer and Maeda, but like I don't think that would happen. It just you know the way the pitching is being pushed up in snake drafts right now. Um, if I took Scherzer, I'd, I'd have to sort of jump down to uh, hoping to get someone in the top 20 uh, to pair with him.
1: Yeah, I think this sort of steers us to a broader question. I mean, if you're in a snake draft situation, are you comfortable not taking a starting pitcher in the first three rounds? Do you feel good enough about the guys outside of your top 15 where you could get maybe three of them between rounds four and seven? And say, yeah, I got enough pitching. I didn't get pitching right away, but I've got some guys who are either going to be stable and return equal value to where I got them. And maybe even one or two of those pitchers can exceed value and and make that leap and become the kind of pitcher that is going in the first three rounds in 2022.
2: No. No. I want a pitcher in the first three rounds. Let me try to build a staff where I'm higher on them than consensus that I like that's outside of the top 15. I'm tempted to put Blake Snell in, but ADP was at 15. So I'm not going to put Blake Snell in, um, because I'm not getting, well, in fact, you're saying first three. So I, it would be somebody outside of the top 40, right?
1: You know who you'd end up with as your SP one
2: no, 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 they're not all going So so what what's the average? You know, one and a half, two after three rounds? How many how many pitchers do you think are normally taken? Well, you could do this with ADP. How many pitchers have a, a top forty five ADP uh, ADP?
1: We'll count Snell at forty six, so fifteen. I knew Snell would be right there.
2: All right. All right. So I'm trying to get somebody outside of my top fifteen uh i'm trying to put a staff together i'm gonna pick i'm gonna gonna, and because i took three bats i'm gonna go boom 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 right i'm gonna try Mm -hmm. to get i'm gonna try to get three so here's 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 the kind of arms that i would have in my my rotation i would go kyle Hendricks, jose barrios
1: i'd probably miss out on some guys and julio urias i think it's a good mix though because you've got two guys that have given us a lot of innings you have a guy in Barrios who could still go up, a, eh, but it'd be bad. But Barrios, I think we've talked about him a few times in the show. It's still possible that he turns out one Cy Young caliber season. He's still capable of that. At least I think he is. I think so Hendricks is really stable, and Urias is the type of rapid growth talk. player that he could he could be a top ten or top fifteen starter this time next year. It's not impossible. Yeah. So I think that's the right. It's the right mindset. That's the right trio, at least conceptually, to try and put together. I feel like you'd end up with Carlos Carrasco. You seem to be even higher on Carrasco than most. The projections like Carrasco quite a bit.
2: I have Carrasco 16, and the ADP was 23rd. I was surprised by that. But the projection was 6th.
1: I don't know what happened with that projection at the time. Something seems a little kind of funky with that. But if Carrasco is your SP1, you're taking on a lot of risk. And that's where I feel like if you go Carrasco, you know Hendricks is almost a must. You're you're looking for volume. You're looking for low injury risk guys. So Carrasco,
2: Hendrix, Barrios is possible. I think given mm-hmm. that I'm higher than most, and their their ADPs are uh, the ADPs on that would be twenty third, twenty uh, eighth, and twenty seventh among pitchers. So. I think that I think that's possible. I just it's not it's not sexy. It's 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 uh you could see it going south, and even the upside is not great. You know, even if all those guys hit their projections, you're talking about having like almost an eight K nine between the three of them.
1: Yeah, but maybe you take on some some high risk, high reward, high you know, high K sort of starters later on. Um, traditionally like a Robbie Ray, but not maybe not Ray Lane necessarily Anderson, this year. Kevin
2: Gaussman, maybe even take a flyer on Lamette.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh for those strikeouts. yeah, I could see it. The other way though, if you don't get Carrasco because the market likes him a lot more than fromber Valdez, like you do like Fromber a lot. So make your best case for Fromber Valdez. Why should we believe that his 2020 is a sign of things to come? Why is that real and why does he belong as high as you have him in your ranks?
2: Well, I mean the the, the uh this the simple one is that he has league average command and great and good stuff. But um, I want to get this curveball stuff open here real quick. Uh, let me see here where Fromber is. There is there, uh, you know, uh, one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, you know, sort of a top ten curveball by stuff. Um, Good, good enough command. I've seen a different stuff number uh, that had him as number one um, with that, mm-hmm. with that, uh, with that pitch. Um, and there's something about curveball guys like him where he's able to shape the ball um, in a couple different ways uh, with the curveball. Um, I, I noticed that he has basically at least two curveballs uh, last year. Um, and then me just sort of believing, uh, that, um, that he can be kind of rich Hillian is my answer.
1: Okay. Cause I mean, I'm looking at the, the minor league numbers and he did get his walk rate down like in 2017 between high A and double a, we saw a double digit walk percentage from Valdez double a and triple a the following year. He was in the seven to 8% range in 18 and 19. He was up above 13% in his Brief time with the Astros, that was like the major skills red flag for me. But just the fact that he's shown improvement with control in the upper levels of the minor leagues, at least, probably should have given me a little more optimism But his chances of bringing the 13-plus percent walk rate down a little bit. I mean, his 5.6% as a walk rate, his true talent level, because that's the lowest walk rate that Framber Valdez had at any level anywhere in the entire system for the Astros.
2: Well, the 97 uh, Command Plus does not suggest that the 5.6 is true. And I, I wouldn't say that I think that either. Um, but um, I would also point to basically homer suppression
1: as a skill I believe he has. Really legitimate skill for him. Like, he gets a ton of ground balls and do- he doesn't give up that many home runs. He just doesn't. 70% it. ground
2: ball rates in the minors at times. This is, that's outlandish. Um and even in his first go with the Astros, had a 70% ground ball rate, had 75% in, in AAA in 2019. And what we found from ground ball guys that uh, that you know 50 is okay, but doesn't mean that much. 55 doesn't mean that much. 60 is really meaningful, and he's done that now two straight seasons. So I'm taking the homer suppression. I'm taking a little bit of regression in the walk rate, and I'm believing in a two-shaped curveball uh, to keep those strikeout numbers high, then you look at the projections and they are really good. I would say, you know, um, especially if you change that BABIP at all. If he has, you know, more of a three hundred BABIP, now you're talking about a three seven, uh, three eight guy with like a one two, one two five type WHIP. I mean, I'll take that, especially with uh, you know, Homer's deadened even further. I that's one thing that I I don't know how that mixes in. Does that make his skill of 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 suppressing homers more valuable or less value also if you'll notice the projection systems are not going to buy into homer suppression as a skill hmm. that takes a long time for 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 projections to believe in so they all have been giving up a homer per nine i would put the over under for him at like 0.7 uh yeah, 0.75 I
1: mean, really hasn't given up home runs anywhere 2019 2019- a 1.15 homer per nine was the only time he was even above like a 0. 0.75. So that's yeah. remarkable. I think maybe because the Astros had similar success with Dallas Keuchel on the development track, maybe that should add a little bit of optimism here too. That should actually have been the name maybe
2: more than Hill because Hill's Hill's like a big strikeout uh, and big fly ball guy. This is more of a Dallas Keuchel situation. Dallas Keuchel, though, also ends up... Perennially at the top of command plus. So maybe not quite Dallas Keuchel, but maybe undervalued in some of the same ways that Dallas Keuchel is. Maybe, maybe Framberg goes down a little bit in next ranks, you know, if everyone's suppressing homers more then his skill of suppressing homers becomes a little bit less um, exciting, mm-hmm. right? So um, that might be part of it, but I see him as high floor. I think that's the, that's basically it high floor and um, floor gets uh get floor gets short shrift sometimes.
1: It does. And I think the more I look at where frombers going, he's probably about thirty fourth, 33rd among starters based on ADP. If I knock out the other closer, I think James Karinchak's the only other closer that gets in there from the little drop from Danelson Nelson I mean, that's not totally unreasonable. It, it Pairs Valdez with it puts him a little behind Jesus Lizardo, puts him ahead of Paddock and Bundy and Musgrove. That's not a group of pitchers that you look at and say, "Okay, this guy clearly has it figured out and doesn't have extreme risk. Like it's comparable risk, even if those risks come from different places throughout that group. So uh, relatively, the price seems okay. I may push him down a little bit,
2: and I think he might make a really interesting pairing with another guy that I'm really high on on the Astros, which is Jose Urquidy. And Orkidi has, um, like, there are probably. I'm not. I have. Don't have it right now. Maybe I can do it right now. Um, there are among pitchers that uh, are in my uh, in my top 200. Um, there are one, no other pitchers that pair a 110 command plus with a 110 hmm. stuff.
1: It's cool because you're getting Jose Urquidy at the fringe of the top 200, sometimes a little after pick 200 you can get him. You can bump him up a round or two from his ADP, not really be overpaying and possibly end up with a pitcher that's quite a bit better than the other pitchers in that range. And you've got him at 30, I had him at 57, and even having him at 57... That rank was enough for me to get him a lot. Yeah, I'm I'm above ADP, so I was getting Urquidy a lot in early drafts. I think the fact that you have him at 30 is going to open quite a few eyes and probably nudge that ADP up a bit as people look at those stuff and command numbers. It would be a really interesting combination with Fromber, I think, because uh, maybe there is some
2: risk in Urquidy's uh, profile, which I'm not seeing, but that the ADP is obviously alluding to. But if Urquidy's the riskier one and Valdez is the floor one, kind of comparing them, um, you know, pairing them would be would be kind of... I just different. realized
1: that...
2: Urquidy's stuff, by the way, looks like it was made in a lab. Like, if you were going to make somebody to, to, to have a good stuff number, which obviously the Astros are that kind of organization. <laughs> <laughs> but if you were going to make somebody... Uh, in a lab to, 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 and, and I don't, I don't want to say it that way because it takes some, some agency away from the pitcher, but just looking at his number, I was like, oh man, look at that. 94 mile an hour seam with 10 inches of ride. That's, that's great. Uh, change up uh, that has six inches of drop and five inches of fade over his seam. That's great. Uh, a slider that's a basically a baby curve it's 81 miles an hour has four inches more drop than the regular slider that's great then he has like a basically a slow curve but it's a 79 mile an hour curve that has five inches six inches more drop than his slider i mean this this it, it, it's bugs bunny numbers man it's bugs bunny numbers that's how you end up with a 114 uh stuff plus uh i hope i get as many shares as possible i i almost considered pushing him down for one. Terrible reason. Nobody should ever know about, but I will tell, I'll be honest here. I considered pushing him down just to make it more likely that I would get him. <laughs> it's
1: kind of you to admit that. I, I think. <laughs> I, I think he'll move up because your rankings are part of research that people do. And when people do research, things change. I think. Just seeing, again, those stuff-in-command numbers. People will
2: snag him from Well, it. yeah, especially if they're going
1: directly against you. I mean, if, if your rankings are out there, it's like, well, <laughs> why don't I just look and see what Eno wants to do, and if I believe in that player, I'll just snipe him. Like That's that's easy enough. I just remembered, I, this is kind of like leaving something in the oven and, and forgetting about it. I put a Twitter poll up yesterday about the Astros starters, and this is only going to further the Eno's Astros narrative, by the way, your love for Jose Urquidy. Uh, the prompt was, Forrest Whitley will have more fantasy value than blank of the Astros' projected starting five in 2021, which right now is Grinky McCullers, Valdez, Christian Javier, and Jose Urquidy. Zero was the winner. I have put zero, one, two, and three or more as the you know the different options for this poll. 39% of the vote went to zero. 35% of the vote went to one. 18% of the vote went to two and 6.3% of the vote went to three or more, which would be pretty extreme, right? Forrest Whitley, though, Jeez. we talked about him a little bit on, under, under the radar on pretty. Tuesday. It's rare to have a prospect pitcher with five above average pitchers. He is the ultimate stuff versus command problem. And the Astros give us problems like this all the time. This is Josh James, but with way more pitches. And as bad as Forrest Whitley has been in the upper levels of the minor leagues and as interesting as each of those starting five pitchers actually are, even old Zach Grinky is still interesting. McCullers has elevated injury risk. We talked about Grinky during the postseason, maybe not being physically right. Questions about how much Valdez carries over from 2020 or at least fair questions to ask, even though I think you've answered them really well. You know, Christian Javier was a pretty big step forward guy last year and then you know Urquidy obviously really like him there is risk in that Houston rotation there could be opportunity very quickly for Whitley if he's able to figure things out but i assume at this point the Astros absolutely still see him as a starter and they see a lot of value in seeing if he's been able to kind of put the pieces together and if he can effectively get through the lineup multiple times starting the season at triple a
2: yeah. And then somebody has to fall off. I, and I think, you know, honestly, I think it'll be injury rather than fall off. The only one that makes me nervous really in the Astros rotation is Christian Javier. He has an 89 command plus. We've seen some of the command issues um, and uh, there's been some usage in the pen and stuff. Um, wasn't he in the postseason? Wasn't he using the mm-hmm. pen? He was the guy that they'd used as a long man, right? Um, and so uh, I think Javier is the low-hanging fruit. Um, I am moving uh, Whitley up in the ranks right now as I uh, slobber all over his Brooks <laughs> baseball page. Uh, I don't think the cutter is any good, actually. With cutter, horizontal movement is really important, and he doesn't have good horizontal movement. Um, so that he may end up uh, turfing that pitch, but the chain slider and the curve look really good. Uh, the seam has good uh, shape. And I have him way too low at 156. I think that reflects my confidence in the top five, just being like, I don't think he has an opportunity. But uh, I have other guys where the opportunity is a question mark that are ahead of him. So I think I will move him way up to uh, at least ahead of like Austin Gomber. So I'm going to move him into sort of the one... Uh, the early 120s, Force Whitley. It's happening right now, right now. If you're
1: watching us on YouTube, welcome. Uh, you can see Eno updating rankings. You can see Eno <laughs> looking things up in spreadsheets. It's, uh,
2: no, it's, 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 it's fascinating. It's scintillating.
1: It's a really good video. <laughs> it's going to probably win us an Emmy someday. Um, probably not, but hey, you never know. People like weird stuff. Uh, the other first timer inside the top 25, which I think is a really important section because you can crush it and get an sp1 or sp2 or you can whiff badly and end up with i don't know nick pivetta from a few years ago and really just hate life because you destroyed your right ra- you destroyed ratios and then had to make a move
2: for the record i never put him in the top 25
1: well that's good I, I that's, that's a win <laughs> <laughs> the other guy though is zach plisak he goes a lot earlier than framber valdez i see stuff in my timeline frequently about zach plisak uh it's not a lot healthy. of disagreement A lot of disagreement about him and I get it I understand why there'd be reservations the central division had the weird schedules with Plesak and this time last year when we talked about Zach Plesak it was usually talking about him in the same breath as Aaron Savali and it was something to the effect of Cleveland's good at developing pitchers these guys both look kind of interesting which one do you like better and living off the difference in those arguments wouldn't have been fun because there wasn't a lot to separate them we saw a pretty interesting skills leap from Plesak. We saw a tidy walk rate. We saw a big jump in Ks. It was backed up by swinging strikes. Still at a home run issue, but even if you want to say regression carries him back to the 2019 ratios. If he gives us 2019 ratios with something closer to his 2020 strikeout rate, a 380s ERA and 120s whip guy, that's a good pitcher. That's like a Jose Barrios, right? That's that's a really nice foundation. And then there's still that glimmer of hope that he's a little better than that based on the fact that 2020 in the shortened season was a lot better than that. So where do you fall on, on Zach Plesak? Do you buy into the adjustments that he made? And just how much does the weird schedule and his season being even shorter than other shortened seasons with eight starts make this more difficult?
2: Um, Yeah, I, I think that I just at the beginning just didn't think that he had the stuff. Um, but I will admit that the slider is the hardest thing, uh, to study in baseball. Uh, there's just so many different kinds of sliders. It's like the Chaz Rowe. There's like the Jake DeGrom. I mean, it's just, there's so many different kinds of sliders that are good. Um, and I think that one thing that police act does, um, that's important is he commands the slider well. And that's been something that's been true of all the Indians pitchers. And when I did some research on what was more important, commander stuff, I found that for the slider, it looked like command was slightly more important. Uh, And I think that has to do with sort of being able to put it on the outside corner, put it beyond the outside corner, no matter what the shape is, the sliders become more of a command pitch than an action pitch. If you look around baseball, it's more of a pitch that people use in counts where they need to strike. Uh, So I think that's been part of why command has become so important. If you look at the the shapes and and velocities and stuff as pitches, uh, I I think the slider is good. The changeup actually looks legit. Good has five inches of drop over his fastball um, has three inches of fade uh, does really well. Got whiffs 21% of the time last year. The benchmark for that is 14% slider got whiffs 25% of the time. The benchmark for that is around 14%. So I think he's a good change up slider guy. And I think the fastball is good enough. And um, I think the Indians are really good at getting the best out of their pitchers. um, And I think he has that all important slider command. So that's my sort of uh, that's my, my passionate, you know, um, uh, defense of Zach, please I will say that going into this, um, I did not think he had what it took, Um, you know, in 2019 um, I just didn't, you know, there's been some changes to the way his slider moves that I think has has been good for him. Um, I wasn't sure that he had uh, enough uh, with beyond the changeup, and um, I'm starting to believe he does. I I will say that's one of the softer spots uh, for me. I, I I stared at that one so much, and it was so weird because I moved him up, I moved him down, moved him up, and moved him down, and I ended up right where ADP is. So I don't know uh, how that necessarily happened. His projection, by the way, is for 78th best among starting pitchers by the bat. So there's a very large spread between his ADP of 20th and projection of 78th. Maybe one of the biggest in the top 100.
1: Well, I think Plesak and players like Plesak are definitely going to be one of the questions I asked Derek Carty about on that episode tomorrow because... I think this is one of those areas where the projections can trick us a little bit. Even if they can ground us on the upside appropriately, they might be going a little too far in the other direction. And I think Zach Plesac was putting up some ridiculous numbers in the upper levels of the minor leagues. That's what made him so interesting as kind of an unheralded prospect upon arrival. You look back at the results and you're like, why aren't we talking about this guy? Partially because he wasn't striking the world out, but he always did a good job limiting walks. Yeah, his home run suppression looks like a skill that, that he had in the minor leagues, at least, based on maybe stuff in command. Whether or not he can carry that over in the big leagues eventually, I think that's a fair question to kind of dig into. But combine the two seasons, a 3.32 ERA and a one oh nine whip now over 171 big league innings, that's a really nice start to a career.
2: He could also uh, benefit greatly, I think, from the, uh, the dead and ball. Because you're looking at a guy, like you said, who never had a home run rate over 0.75 in the minor leagues and now has had uh, basically a 1.3, 1.5 in the first two uh, seasons and is projected by almost everybody to give up one and a half homers per nine. If you change just that number, uh, everything starts to come more in focus for him.
1: Two Marlins I want to ask you about because they're strong rankings from you Pablo Lopez at 29 and Sixto Sanchez at 34. I've got Sixto slightly ahead of Lopez at 50, and i got Lopez at 65. I could be too low on both. Uh, What is it that stands out to you with each of them? I mean, Pablo Lopez was on my NL labor team last year. Felt like it was a pretty good team. It didn't win, uh, but he struck me as undervalued previously, and now I'm a little afraid that he's slightly overvalued. Can you give me a good reason to buy in again here in 2021?
2: One thing that makes me nervous about both of them is that their sinker is better than their forcing And that's something that could push a stuff number higher uh, but be not necessarily in line with, with results we've seen on the field. Uh, one thing that I like about both of them is that they throw their pitches with high velocity. They have many pitches. And n- at least last year, uh, the command uh, numbers didn't uh, leap out as being terrible. So... Sixto, I have uh, a little bit lower, uh, just because. Um, I'm, I wonder if he's going to have to go through some of the adjustments that Pablo Lopez has already undergone. If you look at what uh, Pablo Lopez has done all time in terms of his percent, his pitch usage, you'll see that uh, he's throwing the changeup more and more. He's throwing the breaking balls less. Um, he's trying to bring in this new cutter, and um, you know he found the most success when he really focused on throwing his two fastballs and the changeup. Um, and then I think surprising hitters with the breaking ball, as opposed to in 2019, when he really tried to feature the curveball, I don't think that was amazing, amazing for him. So I think that Sixto may have to go through some, uh, some of this sort of adjustment period. And one thing that I've noticed um, with all uh, pitchers is that uh, starting pitchers in particular seem to be taking a little bit more time than usual. Uh, I don't know if it's teams are happy uh, to put these guys in the pen or what it is about pitching development. Uh, but a lot of it's rarer these days to have a guy come up, dominate and just continue to dominate. You know, it's more likely to have a guy come up, struggle, adjust, struggle, adjust. You know, I've, I've made my living in dynasty leagues off of selling Uh, starting pitching for hitting and then going and finding a bounce back starting pitcher, undervalued starting pitcher in drafts. And uh, so I, maybe Sixto Sanchez just fell into that bias where I'm like, his sinker is better than his four seam. And what sort of adjustment is coming in front of him?
1: Yeah. I think those are really good questions to dive into with those guys in particular. Sandy Alcantara, really interesting in that rotation too. still waiting for that K rate to come through. Uh, No real Doubts about the overall like raw talent. It's just a question of whether or not we're actually going to get everything we want from him all at once or if he's going to be one of those guys that's pretty good ratios but lags in K's and kind of forces you to catch up in that category uh, somewhere else. We're going to get to a lot more pitchers on part two. Maybe it turns into a three-parter, but I think we'll knock out a ton of pitchers on part two. There are a few news items that I wanted to get to, uh, including the in-game video question. Uh, Jonathan Villar to the Mets is the only real notable transaction, and it's a bad situation because there were some rumors that he was going to go to Cincinnati Eno, where he would have played a lot and would have been a really nice source of mid-round steals and a little bit of power. Now that he's going to be more of a super utility guy for a contender, I think the ADP probably has to come down. I, I'm trying to think of where he has to go. Like, where would he have to fall before I even take him? I think he's sort of like Jake Cronenworth with more speed, just in terms of my interest level. And that's disappointing. I wanted Jonathan VR on a bad team to max out his playing time.
2: Yeah, I I can't imagine uh, drafting him in any kind of league other than perhaps um, NL only. And the play there would be um, as like a 2 to $5 guy for some steals that maybe would have a lot of different position eligibilities that I can move them around, would back up other guys. Uh, maybe I would take a shot at gavin lux at mi if he didn't cost that much jonathan vr at utility uh put lux on the bench vr and mi and uh, try to tread water until lux was starting every day that sort of deal i, I can't imagine building anything of a bigger strategy around jonathan <laughs> vr at this point that was already stretching him as far as i could
1: yeah i wasn't really chasing him where he was going anyway. And this just makes it even harder to pull it off. So he's kind of an easy pass.
2: What's the, I mean, what's the, what's the idea for him getting more playing time as just injury. I mean, I don't think defensively he's not bad on the Jeff McNeil at second. I don't think, mm. uh, you know, it'd be as, I mean, Brandon was not very good in center. So I guess you could hope upon hope that there is an NLDH and, and Jonathan VR uh, plays center field for them. Uh, it could be possible. I would say that I personally don't think there's going to be an NLDH uh, this season because that is a, basically a political football. It's like a it's a thing that is being negotiated as part of the CBA. You know, it's a back and forth in the CBA discussions, and so that doesn't sound to me like something that's going to be resolved in a week. You know, we're resolved in two weeks. It's, it's been tabled, and I think it's very unlikely uh, that there's a DH in the NL this year.
1: Yeah. Frustrating if you were expecting that to be the case, as I have been. But uh, we're going back to the smaller playoff field as of right now, too. So that's that's my little glimmer of hope, right, is that the owners might come up with something very late that says, actually, let, let's get to 12 teams in the playoffs. You know, maybe we're not going to go back to 2020 and, and jam 16 in, but let's get to 12 and we'll, we'll give this back. Maybe that happens, but that seems like a long shot at the present time. Very disappointing development uh, on that front. Uh, we had a question about Alex Verdugo that came in after part two of our outfield preview. Uh, the question comes from Camden. Where would you put him among other outfielders in a dynasty league? Is there any chance he takes another step skills-wise? Let's answer the second question first. If you look at Verdugo last year... Six homers in the shortened season, four for four as a base dealer, played 53 games, so about one-third of a season. 18 to 22 home runs kind of seems like his range, long tail speed, 8 to 10 bags seems reasonable. I kind of think what you see is what you get at this point. He is going to turn 25 in May, so there could be one more level if he unlocks a little more power. Hit tools has always been good. So I think you know, good batting averages are fine to expect good OBPs. Keep him atop the order. I don't see one more level. I actually see him as the kind of guy that in a dynasty league, if you're playing for now, he'd be a great player to flip to a team that's playing for the long haul. If you can get a couple of upgrades across your roster in the form of a few older players. Yeah. I,
2: I'm perplexed at the idea that he's a center fielder. Um, I don't, I don't see him as that good defensively uh, but maybe it's a it's an early thing I think that um, he's doesn't he doesn't um, he doesn't show me any of the sort of standout skills that I think um, I would really want to target in a fantasy uh, situation I mean especially with the dead and ball like if he's a guy who hits 280 with 15 homers and four steals next year like uh like I don't know man. I don't uh, I don't see uh there's no there's nothing in the sort of barrel rates that suggests that he's about to uh you know hit for more power. Uh nothing in his the his different launch angle machinations that have gone. Uh his max EV is uh unimpressive. Uh his hard hit rate is unimpressive. Um you know, he's uh he's got a couple more years of improvement, so I don't want to say it's it's totally out of the picture um, but um, you know at the same time while he's got a couple more years of improvement I would expect um, his uh I would expect his sort of athleticism uh to to dwindle or to to to, to wane so uh interestingly though he was the 55th uh, percentile in in sprint speed when he first got in 59th uh in twenty nineteen and then sixty eighth last year. Mm. So perhaps there's a little bit of getting healthy in the knees. Um that uh has suppressed some of his stolen base numbers in the past. Uh and maybe there's more speed there than than I'm realizing. But I just I still don't see somebody with that profile stealing more than ten. So now you're talking about a fifteen ten guy of two eighty. Um I don't know. It's just not, there's nothing there that's like super, super bankable that I I, um, see as like, like I wouldn't put him, I wouldn't be like, oh, I think I'm going to win now. He's part of, he's like, if I have a four player core, I'm not sure that he's, he's in that core.
1: Yeah. I think that makes sense. And uh, I appreciate Camden letting us know his brother turned him onto the podcast. If you have a friend or a family member or someone you know who might enjoy this show, we really appreciate that. If you tip them off to it, it helps us Find some new listeners and helps them find us. So uh, thanks a lot for the question, Camden. I see it the way Eno does. I just don't see an obvious next level. A solid player, but not necessarily a star, even though he was, of course, uh, kind of a centerpiece in that trade that sent Mookie Betts to the Dodgers. Uh, we had a question, a couple of questions come in about in-game video over the last few weeks. Uh, the first question came from Nick. Has there been any talk about allowing hitters to access... The video room for 2021, if not, what should we expect from players this year? Uh, This was, of course, before we found out on Tuesday, I believe, that in-game video will be back, even though the video room is not back. It's going to be available in the form of iPads in the dugout on a delay. So the feeds are supposed to be designed where you can't use the video to steal signs. Some sort of
2: pixelation of the groin region.
1: Is that what they're doing? They're really actually just blocking
3: that <laughs> I, area out. I, I made
2: a joke where I had like a uh, like a like one of those porn black boxes around Sal Perez's nether regions, <laughs> oh, uh, and I tweeted that out. Uh, but I think that seriously, that's what they're going to do. They're going to try and kind of pixelate so you can't you can't get the signs. Um, uh, I'm fine with it. I think that. Um, I think that there'll. Uh, I've always been a kind of promon- proponent of like the tech Pandora's box is open. There's You're not going to shut that. You're not going to take tech out of baseball. So any solution to a problem that's brought up by tech is going to be solved by tech itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's as funny as it is to talk about blurred out nether regions, I, I think this is an example of using tech to solve a, t- a problem brought about by tech. Um, and I would expect. Uh, some of the players that complained about it, like Javi Baez and J.D. Martinez, to, to, to play better with it in hand, will point out the deadened ball is also going to uh, push some power numbers down. And J.D. Martinez, I saw, um, could lose as many as three home runs, four home runs, um, based on the way he barrels balls, where you know, his spray angle, and uh, how hard he hits balls at this point in his career. Uh, he may suffer from be one of the bigger sufferers from the uh, dead-and-ball situation.
1: Disappointing because we will at one point talk about all the UT-only players. I see J.D. Martinez as a good candidate for a bounce-back. It just might not be mm-hmm. bouncing back to the previous level that drove him up to you know, second-round ADPs, right? If he bounces back to fourth or fifth-round levels, that's still good. That's still productive and, and profitable at the cost, but it's not quite what you're hoping for if you're going after him. The related question came in from Max. Uh, What is really up with in-game video as an excuse? A bunch of hitters were claiming for it last year. Does it hold water? Could you walk through the details of a hitter's craft and how the lack of in-game video could really make such a huge difference? I mean, we talked about it maybe a month or so ago. You're looking for almost like confirmation of what you might have seen at the plate, and you're looking at some movements on pitches, kind of verifying different things, looking for things in the release point. It seems legit to me. It doesn't just seem like this sort of scapegoat blanket excuse for a down year. You know, when Yelich and Baez and JD and players have, have come out and said this is a problem, I think that's an honest response to them not being themselves.
2: They don't want to be seen as whiners, like that. Yeah, they don't want they if they say something like Yelich is even sort of famously not wanted to talk about it after he said something once. You know what I mean? Like, because he doesn't want to be seen as a whiner. Right.
1: So I I think it's legit. I think it's not kind of like the JD thing, though. Having it back doesn't mean those players are the players they were before 2020. They also got older, right? They also did lose a little something skills wise and athletically. So you still might not get a complete bounce back to pre 2020 levels, even if you get a pretty significant bounce back by having that tool back at their disposal.
2: Yeah, um yeah. and if you're a subscriber, I would uh, recommend I wrote a piece uh, about Christian Yelich and uh, the the in-game video piece, and talked to different hitting coaches, and um, and uh, really went into into detail with it. I think there's two things that hitters do most of the time uh, that are very important. Is one is check the strike zone. Um, you know, I had a couple hitters quoted my piece as saying that that's all they use it for is where was that pitch. Uh, Why was it called a strike or a ball? And then getting a better sense of where that umpire strike zone is that day. Um, And that can be super helpful because that just helps you define the zone. And that doesn't seem to me like anything that's weird or or bad for the game. You know, it's just a a hitter trying to react to the umpire strike zone. The other part was that, um, you know, hitting is rhythm. And so you're going to start your swing uh, and you're going to try and start your swing basically at a certain point. Uh, in the in the pitcher's delivery, so that when your swing comes through the hitting zone, it's timed at the same time as their fastball. Basically, it's called timing. You know, timing the fastball. And so, if you took your regular sort of fastball swing and then were late on the fastball, you might go back check the video and be like, okay, I need to coordinate my sort of beginning my load. I need to coordinate my load with. Um, this point in the pitcher's rota- rotation, rather than this point. So I need to. I, I, I'm going to move it to when he breaks his hands, as opposed to starting my load when the arm goes back. You know, right? So that you have a certain amount of time it takes you to do to get your swing off. If you if you now coordinate it a little bit uh, faster or a little bit earlier in the pitcher's delivery, and you and you spot something you're like, okay, when his hand does that, that's when I'm going to do it. And so then you come up and I, and I, like, there's a, a, a yellowish sequence in there where he does exactly that. Like he, you see, uh, him time a little bit differently and take Sunny Grace sh- uh, deep, uh, with video. So, um. I, yeah, I think it's. I think that those are the two most legit things. Uh, I don't think you're gonna look at it and be like, "Oh, you know, my hands are too high." Like <laughs> that's uh, that's something that you do um, in the cage in the off season. You know, uh, not during the game.
1: Yeah, that's a pretty big adjustment. But uh, the timing thing is huge. And I think when you when you watched Yelich last season, especially, it did look like his timing was off, and he was just a little bit kind of surprised by things that. Ordinarily, like like he was almost in disbelief that he didn't hit something because he had it figured out, but still was like one step behind, like one micro step off. So I'm pretty optimistic about him as a late first rounder who could be the best player on the board again, too. I mean, the other factor, he was coming off that knee injury and you still kind of wonder whether or not he was going to ever talk about it. How much did that impact him in the shortened season as well? Not fully trusting that leg. Maybe he's in a better place physically now than he was going into that that shortened season. Uh, but thanks a lot for the questions, Max and Nick. We really appreciate those questions. Uh, you can hit us up, barrels at the If you don't already have a subscription, theathletic.com slash rates and barrels, three ninety-nine a month to get you started. All of Eno's rankings, all of his articles, all of my rankings, all the fantasy baseball stuff we do. We got a great crew lined up again this year, so you're gonna want to check all of that stuff out as we get ready for our draft kit launch here in the next couple of weeks. On Twitter, he's at Inoseris. I am at Derek Van Riper. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Friday.
2: Thanks for listening.